I don't think it's been said yet, so I want to be the first to say Happy Father's Day. <laughs> happy, happy Father's Day. We are so glad you're here uh, worshiping with us. I want you to t- turn to Acts chapter 10. That's uh, where we are. We are on a journey through the book of Acts, and my task today was to tackle chapter 10. And chapter 10 is a rather long chapter. It's rather involved. And so I have two choices. I can either just read it to you, (laughs) and that will take our time together, or I could talk about it while you read it, and that will take our time together. And so that's what I thought I would do. Uh, While I talk, would you read down through Acts chapter 10, and it will fill in the gaps, okay? This week, it is the reason that you went to work. It is also the reason that you did not go to work, if you did not. It's the reason that you drove the speed limit this week, or it's also the reason that you may may have gone a little over the speed limit this week. It's the reason that you went out and you ate with certain friends, and it's also the reason that you avoided other groups of people this week. We want this thing so much that it drives literally everything that we do in life. And in Acts chapter 10, you have two men, you have two visions, and you have one God who wants to give both men what they are trying to get, but only he can give them. The first man is Cornelius, uh, verses 1 to 2. This thing that drives everything we do, it's the reason that Cornelius is good. When you read those two verses, you come away with some words about Cornelius. He is devout. He is God-fearing. He is a giver. He is a prayer. It, devout just means he has the proper practice towards God. He's doing all the right things. He's attending, and he's studying, and he's serving, and he's praying, and he's giving. He is a Gentile. He is a Roman centurion. Okay? And he is good. The problem with being good is that earnestness does not equal righteousness. It doesn't matter how much you want to be good and how much you try to be good. How much goodness is enough at the end of the day? And nobody knows the answer to that question. The good people around you that you see doing good, they don't know the answer to that question. And so because of this thing that drives us all, they just keep doing more and more good, trying to attain what they're after. And that's where Cornelius was. This thing drove him, and so he does good. Cornelius was a good man. And if Cornelius is a good man, then the second man in Acts chapter 10 is Peter. And if we say Cornelius is a good man, then we can also say Peter is a religious man. Look down at verse 9. Verse 9, we meet Peter, and he is on the roof of a house, and he is praying. What time of the day is he praying? Anybody? Noon. I, hear, I heard it. It was noon. Do you know when the normal times of prayer were for a Jewish person? Morning, evening. That was normal if you were a Jewish person, but if you were a Pharisee, if you did more than the law required, if you were religious, then you prayed an extra time during the day. And when was that extra time? It was at noon. And that's what Peter is doing. Peter 
is still trying to figure out in Acts chapter 10 what it means to follow Jesus. He will actually struggle with this his whole life. We will see it again way down the road in Galatians chapter 2 when he struggles with what, what does this mean to follow Jesus and where does my religiosity fit in? Peter was a religious man because he's after something. And religion, no matter how you slice it, is always a bargain with God. Religion says, God, I will do what I'm supposed to do. The, the rules you've set down, I will do those. But you have to keep your end of the bargain. That's what religion does. And you and I have been there. We've all bargained with God. That's a normal track for all of us to take. And Peter is there now, but he's about to take a giant leap forward in his understanding of what it means to follow God. So Cornelius is being good. Peter is being religious because they are motivated by the same thing. They want this thing that we all want. Two men in Acts chapter 10, Cornelius and Peter. There are also two visions, two visions. Cornelius has a vision first, uh, verses 3 to 8. Cornelius saw, saw something very clearly. It was unmistakable. And what he saw clearly was an angel. And an angel shows up and the angel says to Cornelius, God sees what you're doing. He, he's noticed your efforts. But here's the next step. You see, that's, that doesn't play in our culture. Uh, if we were to go out in Fort Scott and just give Cornelius's resume to a person on the street and we were to say, look at this guy, look at what he's doing. He's devout and he's religious and he's praying and he gi- he's giving, he's doing all the right stuff. Do you think God would accept him? Everyone on the street would say, oh, absolutely. Yeah, he's doing enough good. Surely God will let him in. Is that what happened here in this text? The angel said, we've noticed your goodness. Here's what you need to do. You need to send for a guy named Peter. And so Cornelius rounds up his servants. One of them is a soldier who is also described as devout, by the way. That's interesting because Cornel- it means Cornelius is rubbing off. He's influencing other people. He's a good man. And the reason for the vision that he gets is God wants to tell him, look, your goodness cannot accomplish what I want to give you. That thing that you're after, your own goodness cannot attain it. There's something else you need, so go find Peter, and the answer will be given to you. So there's the first vision. The second vision is Peter's. And that's where I want to slow down, take a little time, because Peter's vision is a little more complex. Peter is at a house, and the house is owned by a guy named Simon. He is a tanner. He lives by the sea. And Peter is on the roof, and he is, at noontime, being religious. He is doing more than required because this is how he grew up. This is what he's been trained to do. And when you are religious, you pray just because that's what you do. Have you ever gotten into that kind of procedure and, and, and uh, uh, schedule? You just do it because that's what we do. That's where Peter was. And while he was there doing what religious people do, because he was religious, he got hungry. And he's waiting on lunch to be served. And the text says he falls into a trance. He sees a vision. And what he sees is the sky peeled back 
he sees a great sheet coming down out of the sky. And the text says that in the sheet, verse 12, were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. There is an older version of the Bible that I love, and you have to kind of read it with the King James flair, you know, and the sheeteth descendeth from the skyeth. Okay, it doesn't say that, but it does say, wherein were all manner of four-footed beasts and creeping things of the earth and birds of the heavens, right? That's an actor. You need to be an actor on stage to, to read that. That's awesome. Creeping things of the earth, four-footed beasts. The idea here is that everything that is in the sheet is food. It's food to eat. Peter's hungry, right? And as the sheet came, comes down, he sees food that is okay to eat as a Jewish person. And he sees food that is not okay to eat as a Jewish person. There's cuddly lambs in there. Oh, those look good. But then there's also snakes and spiders and scorpions and slugs. Those, no, I don't think so right? The vision is about what's okay to eat and what's not okay to eat. And food is important because of the command that comes to Peter. He is given this command in the vision. After he sees all of this food lumped in together, he says, it says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter's immediate response, nope, can't do that. Never. I have never done that. I can't defile myself by eating food that will make me unclean in God's eyes because, after all, I am religious. This is what we do. And the voice speaks again. The voice says, after Peter objects, what God has made clean, do not call common. Or we could say it this way. There are things, Peter, that you may be against that are in the sheet. But if God says that now everything in the sheet is okay to eat, then you should probably eat. And seen. That's it. That's the vision. The catch to this vision is that it starts over. The sky is peeled back and the sheet comes down and all the animals are there, the clean and the unclean. And this voice says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. He says, no, never. I can't do that. And the voice says, you know what? If God says it's okay, it's probably okay. And seen twice. And a third time, the sky is peeled back. The sheet comes down, clean and unclean. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Nope, can't do that. You know, Peter, if God calls it okay, it's probably okay. And see, three times. And I can tell by the look on your faces, you're a little confused. That is not a bad place to be because that's where Peter was. After he sees this vision, he is perplexed, the, word, the, the, the text says. What is going on? I know that in this text, after this vision, as Peter is working through this in his brain, that he knew four things. First. I know that he knew that the way to please God is to keep the law. The way you please God, if you're a Jewish person, is that you keep the law that he has given to Jewish people. Number two, one of the laws, one of the parts of the law that you have to keep is the dietary laws. Don't eat unclean things. Only eat 
approved things. And so way back in Leviticus, there are dietary codes that God gives his people, his uh, Israelite people. And uh, the purpose of those dietary codes was, was to keep the people of God distinct and separate from all of the other nations around them. Have you ever been on a diet? Let's say it's a no sugar diet, right? And what do your friends naturally want to do? Let's go to Dairy Queen. Of course, right? And you say, well, okay, I'll, I'll go to Dairy Queen with you. And they are there around the table and they have their dilly bars and they have their peanut buster parfaits and they have their banana splits. And you have your little Tupperware container and you pull off the lid and there's a leaf of kale with some asparagus. That's it, right? And you stick out, you stick out. And that is the point. God wanted his people to stick out to be separate, to be distinct from the other nations around. And so since the time of Moses eating the foods of foreigners, the Gentile food, if, they, if the Israelites did that, it meant that they would lose their distinctiveness. And so they went a step further and they said, we're not even going to eat with Gentiles. We're not even going to go with them. We're not going to get, go in their houses. We are going to keep ourselves separate because the people you eat with, there's something intimate about eating right? About somebody joining you at the table for a meal. The Jews said, those people out there are not family. So we're not inviting them to the table and we're never going to their table. Uh Uh-uh. Not going to happen. Number three, this is Amazing, and you can probably chew on this next week, uh, for the next week. First of all, uh, Peter knows that the way to please God is to keep the law. One part, secondly, one part of keeping the law is to eat the right stuff. Number three, when Peter stands up in the middle of his vision, after seeing clean and unclean food and getting this command, rise, kill, and eat, he says, never. And number three, he knows beyond a shadow of a doubt, that he is making the right decision. He is saying the right thing. He's making the right religious decision. That's amazing to me. Here, two chapters in a row, we have people who are convinced that they were doing the right thing for God. In chapter 9, last week, it was Saul of Tarsus. He was headed on the road to Damascus to kill Christians, right? And he was convinced he was doing the right thing. And here in chapter 10, you have Peter, and he's being religious. And he stands up in the middle of his vision, and he is convinced he's doing the right thing. But here's also what Peter knows, number four. He knows that this voice in the vision that is changing the game all of a sudden, he knows that it's God. How in the world can you say that? Well, I know, and if you've read the New Testament, you know that Peter has a history with saying never. I could take you to Matthew chapter 16. I could take you to John 13. I could take you even to Luke 5 or Luke 22 or Mark 8. And every one of those places, Jesus makes a statement, and Peter is on the other side of that statement, and immediately the thing that comes out of his mouth, the word that comes out is Never. That's not going to happen that way, Jesus. Uh Uh-uh. He has a history with saying never. He also 
has a history with the number three. Do you remember what happened to Peter? One of those incidences, Jesus is with Peter, and he says to Peter, before the night is up, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. What does Peter say? (laughs) Never. That's not going to happen. Jesus, you're such a jokester. I love it when you joke like this. It's awesome. Not going to happen. Peter, you're going to deny me three times before tomorrow morning. Hey, weren't you with Jesus? No, no, I don't know that guy. Aren't you a disciple of... No, I told, I told everybody, I am not... No, I don't know Jesus. I think you were hanging around Jesus. Look, I've told everybody twice, and I'm telling them for the last time, I do not know the man. Cock-a-doodle-doo, right? That's how it goes. He has a history with the number three. When Peter come, uh, Jesus comes and restores Peter at the end of uh, the book of John, he says, Peter, do you love me? Jesus, you know I love you. Peter, do you love me? Jesus, you, you know I love you. Peter, do you love me? And it cuts him a little bit. God, you know I love you. He has a history saying never. He has a history with number three and what has just happened in this vision. He has stood up and he has said never. And the scene was repeated how many times? Three times. Peter knows that it's God. And if that's not enough evidence that this is God, this familiar sequence in Peter's life will immediately play out again in the text. It's there. You have to read between the lines, but it's absolutely there. Look at verse 17. Peter is perplexed. He's trying to figure this out. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit says, you know what, Peter? There are some men. They're down at the door. I want you to go down Uh, And I want you to listen to them, uh, what they have to say. And I want you to go with them. I want you to accompany them. And these are, of course, the men that Cornelius has sent to get Peter. And he goes down to the door. He meets these men. He realizes that they are Gentiles, that one of them is a soldier. He probably has blood still on his sword. That could defile you really quickly. He realizes that they have been sent by a Roman centurion, a Gentile, and that this Gentile is inviting Peter into his home to eat Gentile food with his Gentile family at his Gentile table. And everything in Peter wants to say, never. And then he counts the men who are there. How many are there? Three. This is God. More importantly, what is God saying? If this is truly God, then what is he saying? He's saying, go with them. Accompany them without hesitation. Those things that you looked in your sheet and you just saw creeping things, go with them. Go with the unclean people. Take off the spiritual superiority, the religious robes. Go without hesitation. That phrase can also be translated, go making no distinction. Peter, there's no longer any difference between you and between them. 
And I love this word, accompany. It has two uses in the whole New Testament. It's found two times. And it has two meanings, one literal and one figurative. The literal meaning is, of course, to accompany somebody, to go with them on a trip. And absolutely, the Spirit is telling Peter to do that with these guys. Go with them. But the second meaning is figurative. The figurative meaning of the word accompany means to die. We would say it this way, pass away. That's, what, that's the phrase we use when somebody dies. We say, I'm so sorry that your loved one passed away. That's this word. And for sure, the Spirit is telling Peter to go with these men, literally accompany them to Cornelius' house. But could it be, in light of the vision that he has just had, clean and unclean together, is it not too much of a stretch to think that the Spirit is also implying to Peter, I want you to go with them and I want you to die? I want you to go with them and I want you to kill your way of thinking. I want your religious self-righteousness to pass away because that's the only way that you will ever put your whole trust in me. See, Peter's after something. He's after the same thing we're all after. And his answer on how to get it was to be religious. And here the vision is telling Peter, you're relying too much on yourself. You cannot rely on your own religious good works. It won't work. It won't qualify you for what you are after. The good news is, I just want to give it to you. But you have to die first. Man, that that starts to sound biblical. (laughs) Have you read Paul? Have you read the letters of Paul where he says, you have to crucify yourself. You have to die to yourself in order to follow Jesus. What does that mean? I quit trusting in my own righteous good works and I start trusting in the only one that can make me right with God, Jesus. And so on the two-day trip, this idea is marinating with Peter in his brain. Look at verse 28. He says, he shows up at Cornelius's house and he crosses the threshold with probably a lot of intrepidation. And he sits down at their table and he says right off the bat, he says, look, I'm not supposed to be here. Good Jews do not do this. But God has shown me That being a good Jew doesn't amount to much. And so that's why I'm here. And if there's a highlight verse in chapter 10, this is surely one of them. Peter has such difficulty getting to this point, but he is following God. I want to give you a picture uh, that will explain why Peter was having so much difficulty with this new thing that God was asking him to do. I want you to imagine an intersection. It's a very busy intersection. And there's a family, a father. This is Father's Day, right? Happy Father's Day. Father and his children. And they are on their way to Dairy Queen down there because they are not on a sugar diet, okay? And it doesn't matter how it happens, but they get separated. And dad is on one corner and the kids are on the other and the traffic is going. And you, can, you, you know what he shouts to his kids, right? Stay there. Stay right there. Don't move. 
Stay in that little corner. Don't do anything outside that corner. I need you to stay there. And we know why he says that. It's obvious because there's traffic all over. But then the light changes. The traffic stops. And his command changes to his children. He says, come on, come across the street. It's time. Come on. We're going to Dairy Queen down the road. Do the kids feel like their father is changing course? Do do they feel like the father is changing his mind? No, because they have the bigger picture in mind. They know the goal is Dairy Queen down the road. And here's Peter. That analogy works really well because here's God on one corner. And for centuries, the children of Israel have been on the other corner and he and the traffic is going and he has told his kids, I need you to stay in these boundaries. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't eat this. You can eat this. Stay there on the corner. But then the light changes. The Messiah comes. Jesus dies on a cross. He makes it possible for not only Jewish people, but everybody to get to God. And all of a sudden, God says, okay, children, come across the street. And they're coming across not based on their own righteousness. They're coming across the cross of Christ, that his sacrificial life on the cross, his death has provided them a way to get right with God. But not only them, the whole world. And that's the bigger picture that Peter doesn't see. He's not, he's not clued in yet fully that Dairy Queen is down the road. What God wants is that everyone should come to him. And Peter's still trying to wrap his head around that. And the commands seem contradictory unless you know God's big plan. And the reason for Peter's vision is this. Peter, right now, your religiosity, your piety is standing in the way. You're staying on the corner. I need you to come across the street. Lay your religious, lay all those regulations aside. I need you to come across. And unless you do, I can't give you what you're after. I cannot give you what you're seeking. It's important that Peter responds the right way. Because in the book of Acts, this is the first time that the gospel goes to the Gentiles. That's a whole different ballgame. It took nine chapters, and we've crossed a lot of ethnic barriers and racial barriers and geographical barriers. We've crossed a lot of barriers, but we have not yet crossed the Gentile barrier. And this is the first time that God asks one of his children to go outside the, the God's promised people group and include somebody else. And Peter's a little nervous, but he does it. By verse 34, you can see that he's getting it. He even says so. He says, now I get it. God shows no partiality. Every nation who does what is right is acceptable to him. He's getting the big picture that all nations can be accepted by God. And how is that possible? Only through Jesus. Everyone can have what they're looking for. Everyone can be given what God wants to give them if they believe in his name. And what is that? What is it that you're looking for? What is it 
that Cornelius is after by being good? What is it that Peter is striving for with all his religious efforts? What are you looking for in life? What is it that unconsciously guides every decision you make every day in your life? Are you ready? What does God want to give you? Here it is. Peace. Peace. It guides everything you do. The reason you went to work this week was because you wanted peace. The reason some of you didn't go to work this week is because you wanted peace. It's the reason you drove the speed limit. It's the reason that some of you drove over the speed limit because you were late somewhere and you wanted to get peace back. It's the reason that you go hang out with some people because you love them and you want that relationship to keep going and you want there to be peace. And it's the reason that you avoid other situations because you realize you need peace in your life. It's why your body says, I need sugar. And you go to Dairy Queen because you want to be at peace with your body. It's why your brain says, I want to live past the age of 32. And so you don't go to Dairy Queen because you want to be at peace with yourself. It's why the grass is six inches long and you will go out on a day like today that's probably going to be 98 degrees and you will ensure that the grass is three inches long. Why in the world do you do that? Because you want peace. You want peace with your spouse. You want peace with your neighbor. You want peace with the city. You want peace. Everything on some level is an attempt to keep peace with something or someone or even ourselves. And pursuing peace can lead us to very right choices. It can also lead us to very wrong choices. But peace is always the goal. And whether you realize it or not, your efforts at peace are ultimately efforts to be at peace with God. That's where it all always flows. So if you're Cornelius, you try to impress God with your goodness. If you're Peter, you try to pay back God. Pay him back with your religiosity, with your religious zeal and your effort. But neither way works. All of our efforts at peace fall short because we can't do it. And Peter's main thrust in his sermon, starting in verse 36, is that all men... All men everywhere can have peace with God if they do what is right. Because Jesus came preaching peace and he is the Lord of all. And that begs the question, what is the right thing to do? What is the right thing to do? Further down, verse 43, the right thing to do is to receive Jesus. To, t to trust him, that his sacrifice was enough. That your goodness, that your religious... They're not enough. Lay them down. Trust Jesus. That's the right thing to do. And everyone who does that receives forgiveness and peace with God. And before Peter can finish his sermon, these people he saw as creeping things, and probably still does, by the way, are filled with the Spirit on an unmistakable level. And he and all of the Jewish guys he's brought with him, they all are flabbergasted. They say, there, there's, there's, God is in these people too. Is there anything keeping them from being baptized? And we have this baptism ceremony 
and God goes to the Gentiles because of what Jesus has done. Peace comes. And it's pretty obvious, but by the end of the event, these two polar opposites, this Jewish Pharisee and this Roman centurion, two polar opposites, they never have any reason to be connected, but yet they are connected by the end. And the last phrase in the chapter is, Peter remained for some days. Because when you find peace with God through Jesus, the natural byproduct of that is that you find peace with other people, even the ones who kind of creep you out. I want you to take that napkin that you were given in your, on your way in. And um, there's a guy named Alexander White, and he wrote a great little paragraph. I've included it for you on the sermon notes. And this exercise comes from his paragraph. It's a way to apply what we've learned in Acts chapter 10. Because the, at the end of the day, if Peter refuses to kill his Pharisaical practice, if he refuses to go into this Gentile home, if he refuses to sit at the table with outsiders, then the Gentiles never get the gospel. And consequently, you and I never know the peace of God. If he refuses to follow God based on his religious objection, then we don't get in. But because he does, because he follows, he obeys, we have a seat at the table and we are part of the family and we can know peace that Jesus gives So the question is, who's in your sheet? I want you to take that napkin. I wanted you to open it up, and I want you to get a pen or a pencil or whatever, and I want you to write in it. That paragraph written by Alexander White will help you. I want you to write in it. Be honest with yourself. Who are the detestable people that I would put in that sheet? Are there groups of people? Is there a nation of people that you would put in that sheet? Are there ethnicities of people that you would put in that sheet that are unclean to you? Are there people with ideas that you think are off base? Are there people who, are, who have detestable morals in your eyes? Would you put them in your sheet? Are there people that have wronged you? Are there people that you are in some sort of dispute with? Would you put them in your sheet? Be honest, because that's the starting point. That's the starting point. Here's, a, here's maybe a good question to ask. Where will you never go? What will you never do? And who are the people that lie behind those kind of statements? I will never go there because they... Who are those people? I will never do that. I will never get involved in that because they... Who are those people? They're in your sheet. Be honest. Write them down. I'll give you a couple minutes and then we'll close. point of that little exercise is to identify in your life who you need to invite to the table, right? Who you need to include as part of the family, whose threshold you need to cross, where before you're like Peter and you would have said, never, not not doing that. Maybe God is telling you, this is where you need to go because I have somebody in mind that needs to learn of my peace. 
And so the exercise doesn't stop here. I want you to take that napkin and I want you to use it for its intended purposes. Uh, take it to a meal that you're going to have this week. Maybe the meal that you will eat right after this service. And as you are eating, I want you to symbolically think through who you've written down. The nations, the groups, the people, the names. And I want you to start to pray and ask God, God, is there a way that I can invite these people to the table? Is there something in me that needs to change so that these people can find peace? Some of you are a little ahead of me, and the Holy Spirit has worked already because you see a name on that napkin, and you're like, symbolically, why would I do that? He lives right down the street. And maybe the Holy Spirit is telling you, invite them to the table. Here's what I know. I am just a creeping thing. Uh, H.A. Ironside's father, John, was on his deathbed. And as he was... Um, close to death. He had Acts chapter 10 on his mind and he was trying to remember one of the lines of Peter's vision. He was trying to recite a great sheet and wild beasts and, and, and he just couldn't remember it. And so he would start over a great sheet and wild beasts and And he would stall out. And finally, a family friend leaned over his deathbed and he said, John, it says creeping things. And his eyes got wide and he said, oh, yes, creeping things. That's what I am. But I got in. But I got in. It's Jesus that makes a way for us all to sit at the table. And when you understand that, what doors does that throw wide open? It doesn't depend on my goodness or my religiosity. So what doors does that throw open? That I can invite somebody else to the table through the sacrifice of Jesus so that they can find peace. I'm just a creeping thing, and the only way that I mess that up is to get in the way. So get out of the way and let people find peace. Would you stand? And uh, we're going to offer an invitation. Um, If you need to admit for the first time you are a creeping thing and you need Jesus in your life, this is the time to do it. Maybe you need to uh, come forward and say, hey, I I am convicted and God is telling me to reach out in some way that I'm I'm just saying never and I don't want to do that. You come as we sing.